Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where you can hear the GC team discuss and debate topical developments in public policy and regulation from around the world. We're going to finish off our last session this evening by thinking a little bit about food standards. And we're incredibly lucky to have Emily here with us to talk about that. Emily, 20 years in Whitehall. 22. 22. Mainly what we would have called the very old days, the home service, home office, and uh, domestic policing policy. What else? Um, I did about 15 years in home affairs. So okay. um, a lot of immigration asylum. So I cleared an asylum b- backlog. Okay. There appears to be another one. All right. Um, from 2017, various senior roles in DEFRA, um, including a number of very senior roles dealing with the UK's exit from the single EU, the EU single market. Clearly, that wasn't hard enough challenge for you. So you decided to go on to lead the Food Standards Agency. Why did you want to move? What attracted you to moving into food standards? So when I worked on Brexit at, in DEFRA, it was clear to me that food was one of the ways that the debate about the nation's values was playing out um, because people were worried about food post-EU. You know, were we going to be like the Americans? Were we going to be like the Europeans? And that, I felt, was a vector for values, really. And, um, and I'm in government because I want to make the world a better place. I want to make Britain a better place. So I wanted to go and help this organisation who had, were basically a food safety regulator in an EU system they were largely taking their marching orders from the EU, turning into an organisation that needed to set, to come to its own views about food and food standards. That is, I mean, that is very interesting, isn't it? Essentially, the tra- and this is, not, I mean, this is not something that's been limited to the FSA, but the, the transformation from essentially being a delivery arm of European policy to having to develop all that, that mental muscle around the philosophy that informs the regulatory strategy and then the detail, of course, of its... Design. If I, you've partly maybe slightly answered the question, but if I was to ask you, what was the sort of one insight that you took from working specifically on the exit agenda across into your new role? Not to put you on the spot, but what, I mean, what might it be? It's probably not so much food related, but uh, working on Brexit. So I, I joined DEFRA in 2015 to be their director of strategy. And then in 2016, the referendum happened. And I was suddenly in the middle of this organisation that was the most affected department for Brexit. I think Bayes probably just about competed. And we also didn't know for the first six months what kind of Brexit was going to be. Were we going to stay in the single market? Don't know. And then as we went through the next two years from sort of 2017 and that speech from Theresa May right up to 2019 and the no deal deadline, we just didn't know if we were going into no deal. So, um, and we were planning for worst case constantly and then trying to be ready for the possibility it might go well. So what I took was how to manage and lead in uncertainty. That was the biggest thing I learned. I can tell you a lot about how to do scenarios, how to use virtual reality headsets for the organisation, how to change uh, and lead teams that suddenly have to break down and start again somewhere else. That's what I took from it. What was the biggest challenge of running a food standards body through COVID and through lockdown and through the, the imposition of home working? The first thing was... We have meat hygiene inspectors and official vets in every single abattoir in the country. Um, And uh, I mean, the first weekend that locked and we'd done our planning, you know, we'd worked, we'd been told a couple of months before, plan for people being sick, see what you can do with 30% fewer staff. So we'd done all contingency planning on that. But no one had anticipated that people wouldn't be able to go into the office or go into work. That was a sort of sudden shock when we had that lockdown. And so I suddenly had a load of office-based staff who are policy and science people 
who were working from home. That, was, that bit was the easy part. I then had a lot of meat hygiene inspectors who were expected to go into abattoirs who were basically saying, why are we doing this when all you middle class lot are behind a desk doing your scientific advice on whether COVID's safe? And we are actually going and making sure the country has got meat on the table. That was that was the challenge. And at the same time, there were a number of my staff are in other people's abattoirs. So I might be responsible for their health and safety, but I'm not in charge of putting the screens up and making sure yeah. that um, that the checks are happening locally. So that was that was a bit I found really difficult. And any kind of any sort of legacies, positive legacies, enduring legacies for the way we do food standards implementation, food regulation, you think from that from that period of, of, of change and disruption? I mean, I guess I, what I'm left with is a sort of mental to-do list of bits of food regulation that I'd like to change. So for example, in the first couple of months, um, we were quite concerned that there would be food shortages. We just had the toilet paper issue. We, there were queues um, at supermarkets. We thought that there might be sort of sudden shocks that would mean that um, certain ingredients couldn't get um, into products and then onto the shelves. And what we discovered very quickly is that food labelling law has not been designed with any kind of safety valve in it. So unlike the competition law where you could basically say, yep, suddenly all the supermarkets can cooperate, we've got a little clause we can apply, food labelling law is just very, very prescriptive. You must write the ingredients in, in, in order. Um, you must, if you've got, uh, if you haven't got any sunflower oil, and but it says sunflower oil on the packet, that's illegal. So there, there's no sort of room for manoeuvre in a crisis. So that is one of the things I took away. Yeah, interesting. I think I think we've actually had that little problem in microcosm as well around some of the issues around things like sunflower oil from Ukraine and stuff. So the inflexibility of they ran into the same issue last year, and and it, this is an example where um, I love the FSA and it's it's also frustrating. So I'm, I've spent my career in Whitehall departments um, and and then moved to the Food Standards Agency, which is a non-ministerial department. I don't have a Secretary of State I can walk into every day and say, oh, can you just sort this out for me? Um, and and the, on, the good, on the upside, you don't have a minister you have to walk in. I, it, it has been <laughs> there's some pleasures of the last three years, I have to say. Um, and so we, we, we have independence. I have amazing scientists. Um, we, we're able to be very evidence-based in our policymaking. But it's very difficult. I feel like we've traded independence. I've traded independence for influence. So, you know, my mental to-do list of a bit of regulatory change I quite like. I don't have a Secretary of State that I can go to and say, right, top of the list, next crisis. So here we are, Ukraine, sunflower oil shortage very suddenly. Exactly the same issue that we ran into where um, companies were wanting to substitute rapeseed oil for sunflower oil. We did a risk assessment, established it was safe to do so. But we ran into the labelling. Then you have a labelling Exactly the same thing. We ended up doing what we call proportionate enforcement, where we um, tolerated that uh, there being rapeseed oil when it said sunflower oil in the packet with some consumer information for a period of months. Yeah. And as you say, for the competition regulators, it's actually written there in the rule book. Um, yeah. Okay. So what I want to do in the next sort of 15 minutes or so, and please, I'd like you to start thinking about uh, intelligent questions you can throw at the UK's leading food standards setter. Um, I want to ask you three questions about the future of food standards in the UK. And in some ways they touch on, well, in the UK and in the UK in a global context. And in some ways actually they touch on your observation that in some ways one of the challenges for the UK is to uh, adapt from being a, a delivery arm of, of, a, of a European Union policy system to one that's going to have to do its own thinking about uh, how it wants to express its values in its standards, how it wants to design standards that can actually be implemented, and how it can make standards in a world uh, in which 
regulation is inherently a national business, but which, as we've been discussing this evening, the food distribution system is inherently transnational. But I want to, so these are all questions about three, three sets of questions about the future. Now, the first one is about um, data and data in the process of, in the practice, rather, of uh, food standard setting. Um, it seems to me this is an area where, as in many other sectors, our capability to measure, our at least potential to know, is moving very quickly. With that, there's a set of parallel questions around how we make sure that what we, uh, that the data we use can actually, can be processed and understood. How's that playing out in food standards? So it varies by topic. We've got data being used all the time to target the resource of local authorities and the Food Standards Agency. So it, it's we already do lots of surveillance of risk, and then we we don't you know we're, we've been in austerity for the last um, decade and, and a bit. There are fewer inspectors than there were before. We we target those inspectors at the highest risk. So for example, with imports, when the UK left the EU, we lost access to the to the EU's rapid alert system for food and feed. And the UK built a surveillance system, uh, which is run by the Food Standards Agency. Quite, we did it quite cheaply. We're quite proud of it, which surfs across loads of websites and open data sources all the time to try and collect signals, which tell us where there might be food safety risks happening around the world. And we sometimes spot things before the EU system seems to spot them because we're doing this thing and it's got Google Translate involved and, and natural language processing and all sorts of clever things. So that's so data where we spot risk and then can target our resource. So we can say to port health authorities, just go and look at these figs from Turkey that have got aflatoxins in because we think there might be a problem there. That's something that, that has definitely um, improved things and there's loads more to do. You say there's loads more to do. Just before you move on, just what is the, what is the next kind of iteration of that kind of risk management? Well, I mean, the thing that we are missing at the moment is um, is data on EU food and feed. Okay. So we have data on the rest. Why, why is that? Why, why, why? Because there are no import, that's not completely true. There are some import controls on EU food and feed. Right. We have pre-notifications of high risk products of animal origin. Right. Um, but we because we've got this asymmetric arrangement at the moment where um, the UK or GB producers have got to do lots of export health certificates and so on going into the EU but we have the reverse coming from EU, the EU into the UK um, we, we uh, the, the government was going to impose import controls last summer and yeah. have postponed it till the end of this year and just from a food safety point of view there are just some things that that we could do with a bit more information on so um, products of animal origin um, high risk food, not of animal origin. We, you know, we we just don't have the surveillance to tell us um, okay. what we did before. I mean, we, um, as an example, we did um, an operation with Border Force in September at Dover, where we were um, checking uh, vans coming through and found a lot of pork from Romania that shouldn't have been coming through. Uh, that was an intelligence-led operation, so we are still getting intelligence. But there's more like it's that. not coming through borders. It's not coming through your, your normal import yeah. checks, which is export health certificate systems and uh, and then documentary checks, identity checks. So I mean, there's, so there's data. Do you were talking about how could data be used? It, there's another way that data gets used, which is where you benchmark businesses. Now, in the, in the UK, we use the food hygiene rating, for example. So every premises has got one of has got a sticker, naught um, to five, in terms of its food hygiene rating, and that. That acts both as a as a um, indicator for consumers to help with consumer choice, but it also is is um, 
it's like a shop window. I mean, the business behaves differently because they know they're having to put a sticker up on the on the window. And in Wales and Northern Ireland, where we have mandatory display of those food hygiene ratings, we don't yet have it in England. We would really like it here. The FSA would really like it here. Um, it's very clear that they when they have to put their rating of one or two up on the window, they don't like it and food hygiene has improved. So benchmarking, even though we don't say you must be a five, but the benchmarking and the display of the information has incentivized an improvement in food safety. And we know that um, the higher the rating, the fewer um, foodborne, the less foodborne disease there is. So, so, so benchmarking, I think, is how it can help too. There's then my thought, third topic is about product level information. So um, there, there are some things where we do have the product level information on nutrition and so on. But I think on sustainability, to me, it feels like it's not yet, well, it's not yet properly regulated, frankly. Love a bit of regulation. Um, there, there are claims. It's hard for the public to understand. I mean, you could argue the same actually with some of the nutrition claims. Um, certainly, consumer research we've done, which suggests that people, like most people, understand what a healthy diet is, but most people don't know what some of those words mean, like low calorie or um, good for your gut or whatever. They they don't. So that being clearer. Anyway, so you need that data to to help you um, understand what's in a product so that you can put, do accurate labeling. Um, and and once you've got that, then you can start having better data, base, better food standards. So I think the data then becomes a way of you saying, right, this is what we always mean by scope three emissions or um, carbon emissions or water quality. So the data enables you to have the food standard. Yeah. I mean, is your, is your instinct as a standard setter that we, it is ultimately achievable to have uh, a materially useful and robust system of something like eco-labeling? Or do you worry that there are, there are just too many compromises in getting to the end, to, to, a, to a, simple, a simple indicative label that could end up actually undermining its, its, its robustness, if I not its... It's a really interesting policy-making question. So, and I think your question betrays some of the natural biases we tend to have as policymakers where we want to try and fix a thing. Yeah, right. Like, can we have the perfect answer and just take all this rubbish complexity out of it and, and solve it? Yeah. Um, I don't think, I, I think an eco-label is a fantastic example of, of the sort of the complicated choices you'd have to make. So, you know, starting with, um, uh, are we going to do carbon plus biodiversity? Are you going to include animal welfare in there? Actually, that probably makes it um, less good for the environment because there's more land use. Um, are you uh, are you going when you do your biodiversity? You think about land use, or you think you know? There's just so many complicated things to the point where you could say, "Well, I'm just this is just too hot. I'm not yeah. going to bother at all." I think the answer is to say, "What's the next incremental improvement we can make that makes a bit of a difference?" And then we'll regroup. So, what's the next thing we do that that um, takes us some of the way there? It's the same thing for any kind of transition. I've done 22 years in government. I'm slowly concluding that incremental change is the stuff that you can make, move and stick rather than these sort of big, uh, solve the whole thing in three years. Actually, you've got to move at the pace that the system can move. So let I, so I do think you can get somewhere on eco-labelling. I think you have to do it in stages. Okay. So that's actually really interesting because it's a transition to my next question and my next sort of, if you like, my next, uh, my, my next decade ahead problem. Because as you say, one of the challenges, of course, of something like an eco-label is working out um, what are we actually going to try and express through it and what are we measuring. And of course, what we're often measuring is something that takes place outside of the UK. And it's, um, it's important, I think. I mean, so my background's in trade policy. One of the things you learn very quickly in trade policy is you have to learn to distinguish between product and production. 
the WTO rulebook treats products and production quite differently, or rather it treats one and largely ignores the other. So my question to you is, if we sense that the politics of food is increasingly be asking questions about the sustainability of our food production outside of our jurisdiction, the treatment of um, workers in the production of food outside of our jurisdiction, the treatment of animal welfare outside of our jurisdiction. And we, of course, we have no material way policing those standards. They, they, are, they belong to another jurisdiction, another society. How, how do we start tackling that problem? When it's not the product of the border that we're, we're policing yeah. or the product being placed on the market, but it's production on the other side of the world. So I think, I think there, is, there is a role for industry and there's a role for government. So, and I think they're two quite different ways in. So, if, um, so it's not the case that we cannot, that we as consumers cannot have some kind of control over um, the product that we're, that we're choosing to buy because actually retailers and manufacturers control their supply chains to an extent and make choices all the time as we were hearing from Stefano about what kind of farming they're going to be using what kind of um, standards they want there are all sorts of industry schemes and so on so there, there is there is an ability for a node in the system to make some decisions about what kind of standards it wants to apply and then to try and make sure that, that happens right it, it however the world trade system based on governments and rules is not designed that way it was set up in the 1990s as, I mean, I, I worked in Geneva in the 1990s um, for a year. I very much remember the demonstrations that happened um, against the, would it have been the General Agreement on Tariffs of Trade in 1998? In 1988, it would have been the Marrakesh. Yeah, and I, because I remember a lot of the interns I was hanging out with went on the demonstration and got tear gassed. That's what I remember. Um, and Sounds like an internship at Global Council. <laughs> <laughs> I was on holiday at the time, so I didn't get involved. Um, Whatever it was, for my, later, for my later career. Donald Trump um, came to power the, on and, the back of an anti-free trade that's... agenda. But anyway, the system that was set up in the 90s was, the assumption was it, it was all about free markets and trying to stop protectionism. And the moral stuff was seen as protectionism. So health and safety, absolutely fine. We've got sanitary and phytosanitary standards that are written into trade agreements. Um, we're up for checking safety at the border and we have port health authorities doing that. Um, but other things that like environment and animal welfare were seen as moral things. Now roll forward 30 years and here we are in a, crisis, a climate crisis where we've just been hearing tonight that we're not going to get um, uh, one and a half degrees without some kind of radical change on the food system and we haven't got a world trade system that's prepared to acknowledge that i yeah. think now there are there are things going on so you do have um you know, the, there are uh, agreements from um cop 26 that were, that were made where people are trying to attend to this internationally um codex alimentarius which is the international standard setting body has, uh, has just been setting out its um its uh, future agenda and it's on it it's, it includes um global, political, environmental, economic and health issues. And it wants to look at it. But there are 188 countries in Codex and, the, and they are going to have to work together on these things. So there is, there is some movement, but, um, but I don't think the system is set up sufficiently to deal with the challenges that we now face in the food system. Yeah, oh, that, that strikes me as that absolutely, absolutely right. And I think the interesting thing is that it's precisely, in fact, because we have an international trade rule book that makes it very difficult to discriminate between... So 
as a former trade policymaker, when I hear Henry Dimbleby say, oh, we should be treating New Zealand lamb this way and Australian lamb this way, I, of course, I'm like, you can't do that, Henry. Haven't you read the rules? Um, but of course, what you, what, you, what, what you can do is, of course, you can require companies to conduct due diligence on their supply chains and disclose the, the presence of deforestation in their supply chains or poor labor standards in their supply chains. And of course, companies can themselves look down their supply chains and make ethically motivated choices about where they want to source goods. And, and one of Henry Dimby's... The rule book doesn't have to stop us. Yeah, and, and also if we, you know, there are other ways in for us as, as government and policymakers. So, um, so, you know, is there transparency at the moment across the biggest food businesses? And there may be a, a hundred of them or so in the UK, perhaps 10 retailers and some big manufacturers. Uh, do, we, do we measure and have transparency about their performance on... Um, on uh, nutrition and calories and on sustainability questions which are which are done in a consistent fashion um because that would be quite useful for investors it would be quite useful yeah. for um for uh consumers even if they were interested and that's not to say that we're setting targets it's just saying let's have a, a standard way of measuring and some transparency about how these businesses are behaving because they because for, for much of the food industry is extremely global and there are some very exciting initiatives that I think companies are taking to um, to manage those emissions. And you know, every and it's everyone talked in the food industry is currently wrestling with how to do scope three. Like these are things that they're trying to work out, not with government requiring it, but maybe some transparency would make a difference there. Right. Let's have a question. Quick fire. My question is about uh, the FSA's role in regulating innovation over the next decade. So I reckon alternative proteins are probably the big innovation for the food system over the next decade. And my question is, is the FSA ready to regulate for this whole new category of things? The background being, I'm not going to go on too long, I promise, is we left the EU with the promise of loads of Brexit freedoms. This might genuinely be one of those Brexit freedoms to keep our high standards, regulate quickly and induce some innovation in the UK. Is the FSA ready? Um, yes and no. So um, we, have, we do have a regulated product system. We've inherited it from the EU. We've, we've added a load new, of new people to the organisation to receive those applications and, and decide them. But we are operating the system that was designed by the EU, um, which is retained EU law. And, and it's, it, it, it's a sort of one-size-fits-all approach, I think. Um, so, you know, you apply and it can take basically up to about two years to, um, for, the, for the thing to come through. Um, if you looked somewhere like Singapore, where they just authorised some cultured meat last year, um, and or maybe it was the year before, um, and they and so, I, if you compare their food regulator, so for a start they have a different challenge. They import ninety percent of their food. We import forty five percent of our food. So they are very, very, very thoughtful about food security and are are doing a lot to try and look at innovation, vertical farms and and alternative proteins. But second of all, you look at how they're funded as a regulator. They have they pay way more than we do to their civil servants, um, and they have a lot more people, and they give much swifter advice to um, to industry about their, the likelihood of success. And my impression is they have a very very good pre-application service that you can engage with and get quite good certainty from the regulator early on. We have had to beg and I mean, I'm going to sound like I'm waving my stumps, but we have had to work so hard to persuade part, parts of government that we need additional money to do our regulated products work. Um, the whole budget of the FSA 
is about 120 million quid. And that is to cover probably 40 million quid's worth of meat hygiene controls and abattoirs and some science. We work in Wales, we work in Northern Ireland, as, um, we have offices there, and we do a load of policy work across food safety. We are, and if you think the food uh, industry itself is maybe 270 billion pounds of consumer spend, I think we're quite cheap. So I think if you wanted us to be really ready for alternative proteins, we would have an extremely well-funded pre-application service. We would change the rules a bit so that we could have slightly more flexibility. I mean, for example, just to give you my current irritations with our regulatory systems or my to-do list, um, at the moment, in order to get any individual product authorised, um, it has to be um, a statutory instrument laid in Parliament for that individual product because of the way we have brought the retained EU law into our into our law. So for, for the smoke flavourings, we, the FSA, have to write to three sets of ministers, so Scotland, Wales and England. I mean, Food Standards Scotland do it in Scotland and we try and coordinate at the same time. Um, they then agree that the um, smoke flavouring that we had authorised 10 years ago, which needs reauthorising, can be authorised. And then we lay it in front of, we, we write a statutory instrument, lay it in front of Parliament, and then 21 days later, whatever, it becomes law. Now, if we just had a list that we could write it onto, like they do in the EU, actually, we could save probably three months of the process. Um, because we have to coordinate between three different recesses and three different parliamentary timetables, and we could just speed it up. So it's things like that where you could just improve um, the, the, the way we do um, the regulated products and so we could do it faster and we could do it better. Okay, two quick fire extra questions for you. The first is actually my third question about the future, which has to do with what the food standards landscape in the UK looks like outside the single market, which is, of course, one in which we have devolved standard setting back to not one, of course, but four bodies. One sentence, how do we make that work? What's the single most important thing about making it work? We need a ministerial committee. Okay, great. There isn't one. You heard it here. Uh, second question. Uh, so, and of the devolved ministers, they don't meet together to talk about food. Okay. Trust in food regulators. 57% very strongly or completely trust food standard regulators in the UK. How did you do it? <laughs> um, we, we think about 75% of people, um, when they have heard of us, trust us. It's really high compared to government. Um, in general. Um, so we think there's three things that, that deliberate choice is not quick fire, but three things. What I'm impressed um, about is that you've actually thought about this. You've actually got an answer. So food you can trust relies on having a regulator you can trust. We, and food yeah. you can trust is what, what all of the food industry need to sell their food. So a regulator is essential to their economic success, I would argue. But if we're not trusted as a regulator, they are all screwed. So we need to be um, trusted. What, what makes a difference? Um, first of all, we have to be competent. So we have to make good decisions based on evidence. Second of all, we have to be visible. Um, and, and our research tells us this. And we are very fortunate with the food hygiene rating that there are stickers in every um, restaurant window in the country. Well, uh, not in England, but in Wales and Northern Ireland there are. And then there's a, for all the good restaurants in England, they've got their stickers up. Um, and the third thing is to do with values. So if we do things that are countercultural or against the values of the country, we lose trust. And I think that's what happened with horse meat. Um, where it, was, it wasn't a safety issue, it's safe to eat horse, it's just against the British values. So we have to pay attention to those three things. And we operate completely transparently. We have um, board meetings in public. I have to go on telly, basically, as, as I get held to account by the chair of the board and, and the board. And we publish all of our papers. Um, so I think that adds to the visibility and the transparency and the trust as well.
Brilliant. Okay. Well, that that was brilliant. Um, it's a it's a pleasure and a privilege. Thank you very much for joining us. Please join me in thanking them. Okay.